to the 4.0 Solutions podcast live Q&A. But it's live Q&A and podcast because we stream on YouTube live. And then it gets deployed out to all your favorite podcast apps. Podcast. Yes, for Tuesday, March 29th. As we stream on YouTube live. 2022. Deployed out to all your favorite podcast apps. Podcast. Yes, for Tuesday, March 29th. Are you... Sorry, that was me. That was me. That was me. Oh, it was Zach broadcasting his audio. Sorry. That was me. <laughs> like, what's going on there? So, Zach, where are you this week, man? Um, here in a hotel room. Uh, undisclosed location in cheese country. In Wisconsin? Yeah. Dude, the, the cheese curds here are no joke, man. Really? Yeah. I have an interesting and, uh, Wisconsin story. Yeah, there's a lot of like... Um, there's a lot of manufacturers out here in Wisconsin and like kind of the, you know, that area. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one in particular is a lot of uh, manufacturing around agricultural industry. Uh, so, so we're doing a digital doing transformation, digital transformation maturity assessment. I'm here supporting Alan, who's leading it. Um, I'm, well, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, off site right now. We had a, we had a engineering meeting yesterday and a kickoff this morning. We had a operations meeting. Uh, tomorrow we got a couple more meetings and we got the leadership meeting before we head out on Friday. Overall, you know, really solid. This is, I think, Alan's third or fourth DTMA he's been a part of. First one he's really leading on site. And he's just, dude, Alan is so on top of things. It's it's <laughs> not even funny. <laughs> it's funny. Everybody, everybody asks me like, hey, are you, Walker, are you sure you don't want to work with Alan on this DTMA? Like, just sit in the background and i said no i said not at all he's he's more than prepared i guarantee alan will spend 100 hours preparing for uh something that i think most people would spend one hour preparing for so go ahead go ahead Zach. Did it, oh if and if alan did need you he could do what that other client did where yes. he could alan could go on our website at iot university go to the store and book walker reynolds for a one-hour consultation and then just have you sit in on that meeting during the DTMA. So interesting story. Yeah, I'm going to tell a story. Interesting story. So uh, what have I been doing? So a um, couple of interesting things. So what, what are we going to talk about this week uh, real quick? So I'm going to talk about um, the truth about digital transformation, not the myth. So like how does digital transformation actually happen? Um, kind of compare it to say the industry 4.0 maturity steps. Number one, number two, we're going to go over a, a unified namespace use case. So this will, we'll touch on a use cases for a tier one automotive supplier. I'm literally going to just walk through like the genealogy of the project. And then, um, <clears throat> and then, we, and then we'll do, we'll probably do a deeper dive in mastermind or mentorship. Actually we will, but at some point, but today we'll go over. Um, so for the next five weeks, we're going to cover a different use case for the unified namespace uh, architecture each week. We were originally going to try and do all five in one session, but once I started putting it together, I'm like, there's no way we can go over five use cases in one one-hour podcast. So, But a um, couple um, of announcements. So like yesterday I spoke, I did a keynote address for ISA Edmonton um, on Industry 4.0 and its implications for the economy in Alberta. And tomorrow I sit on an ISA IOT readiness panel at, uh, Cheryl, correct me if I'm wrong, 11 o'clock central time, hopefully. 
um, Cheryl McCrary will be dropping the link. If you guys want to sign up, that's a, that's open to even non ISA members. It's a great panel. Um, Jake Hall is going to be another one of the guys that's on there. Um, and, uh, there's also the, the digital transformation architect from Stanley Black and Decker will be there. Um, Jane, I can't remember her last name, but I, I do know her. She's really well known in the industry. So, uh, going to be a great panel. Highly, highly encourage, um, anyone to join us. It's going to be, is it 11 Eastern or is it 11 Central, Josh? It is 11 Eastern, 10 Central, and Cheryl McCrary will drop the link if you guys want to sign up and, and sit in on that readiness panel tomorrow. But an interesting thing here that I did today that I thought actually was brilliant, that it wasn't even our idea. So there was a, there was a partner, an IT consulting firm in Europe who reached out to us, um, and I think it's through, you know, someone in Mastermind or something said, hey, you, you know, you should reach out to Four Point Solutions, talk to Walker Rounds about this stuff. But they're doing a, um, like a three-day workshop with a client or whatever, and um, on digital transformation, you know, big, huge manufacturer. And the, this company that reached out to us, this consulting firm, I mean, they're, you know, they're a, an elite IT consulting firm, right? You know, really well-known. And they were like, hey, you know, Walker, would you be interested in doing one hour at the beginning? They didn't tell us that it was during this, this, um, that it was during this workshop. They were just like, hey, would Walker be willing to come and do a one hour presentation um, on digital transformation? So like do a half hour presentation and then a half hour Q&A and uh and then tell us what actually what it was for. And, and people do do that quite a bit. But normally when when they hire me to consult, there's like a room full of people and they're just asking all these questions. You know what I mean? Like um, they, they, you know, they'll, just, they'll have a long list of questions. They just ask me the questions and I answer. But this was different. They actually asked me to present. Then they had me answer questions. And I found out at the end that what they did was they hired me to speak for the first hour of the workshop. So they had like, three days of workshops that they're leading, but they, they asked me to come in and speak just for the first hour. And it actually went over. I, I, I answered questions till for like 20 extra minutes, but it was really, really cool. And I remember walking away thinking, I actually went and talked to John McLeod, who's our chief experience officer, like right after it, I'm like, that was a brilliant idea that they had to do that. Like, cause it, it was, you know, we always talk about how we can maximize our impact on the community. Right. You, you know, and um, this is a great way because it's it's only an hour of my time or 90 minutes of my time as opposed to committing to an entire week where I I'm I have to lead all these sessions and stuff. So anyway, really cool, cool stuff. So um Zach, anything else you got going on before we get started with the with the concept here? Or with the, um, with no, the I really I really love that idea though. I, I was thinking about that and I was like, you know, I think more people should do that. Like especially the people that are in mastermind and they're like, they, they know they're ready to lead a DTMA, but maybe there's a couple of areas where, you know, they're, they're not quite sure they want to bring mm -hmm. in the expert. I mean, that's a brilliant idea, you know, to bring, bring in you for the first hour, set the tone and then continue off on all the other data, data gathering. I mean, well, yeah. An idea. It, and even if it's not me, but even, let's say, even if it's not me that they're bringing in, what if it, it's, a, it's right. It's a beautiful idea for like one of the biggest challenges you have is how can you make 
your technical architect available for all the conversations that that person needs to be a part of? And the answer is, it's really, really difficult. You know, you, that person ends up running out of time. So the, the, the trick would be if you're going to be doing these very labor intensive engagements where you're doing your assessment up front, what you really need to do is bring in your technical resource to do a presentation, which is, which is really the alignment of the audience, right? Answer any key questions and then be available to just answer questions through a, you know, someone can send you a quick teams message. Hey, what, you know, what's your response to this question about security or, Right. As opposed to trying to commit the architect's time for an entire week. It's a brilliant approach, even if it's even if you're not hiring me to be that person up front or you're you're, even if even if it's just about managing the time of your own internal resources. Right. It's a it's a really is a brilliant approach to uh, to it. So um, anyway, let me uh, I want to I want to go ahead and get ahead because we got a ton to cover. Right. Uh, this week. So a uh, couple of I already gave you the announcement about the I'm sitting on the ISA IOT readiness panel tomorrow, 10 o'clock central, 11 Eastern. Cheryl has dropped the uh, the link um, in the chat um, and she also dropped it in the discord. Um, you guys may have noticed that I've dropped Cheryl's name a couple of times here. So I had a big announcement for last week that I forgot to make and I apologize. But Cheryl McCrary, who you guys should all know um, from the community, and and she's been a very active participant in the Industry 4.0 community for the last year and a half to almost two years now. She joined 4.0 Solutions um, last week. She started on Monday. She is now our new business analyst. Um, Cheryl, we have been, this has been in the works for months. Um, Cheryl, we hired Cheryl as a consultant last September to come in and evaluate business processes, evaluate um, processes for deploying our products to our clients. And, you know, a lot, but a lot of what we talked to her about was messaging. How can we be more effective in messaging to our community? You know, how can we, um, you know, build an, you know, how, how do we decide which questions go in an FAQ? How do we make that accessible to people who, who asked the same question, you know, we'll get the same question a hundred times that obviously should go into an FAQ. So we had hired her in September to do as a consultant. And then she wrote a report saying here, the, here are the things that I would do. I recommend you do this part. I remember to do that. And then we were like, well, why don't we just hire Her- Cheryl and, and have her do it um, and just bring her on full time. And so Cheryl uh, McCrary has joined the team. And um, by the way, she's doing an absolutely amazing job just eight days in. So um, welcome Cheryl McCrary, uh, was probably one of the smartest decisions I've made lately. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah, one more, um, uh, one other announcement, mastermind accelerator for those of you guys, uh, who are new to the mastermind program, you've been going through the week, the 12 week accelerator program to get caught up on mastermind with the rest of the group. Week eight is tomorrow. Step eight review. Uh, we will be going over transformative and disruptive leadership. I will be doing that presentation because Zach is uh, on the road with a client this week. So, um, and then some industry updates. We're actually going to talk about this a little bit more. Uh, the Tesla Gigafactory in Austin, Texas is opening. The opening fair is on April 7th. Um, we are currently working quite diligently to see if we can't get tickets to the Giga Fair uh, for April 7th. Hopefully, um, we're going to be able to pull that off. There's only 15,000 tickets. Um, and it's invite only. I, I suspect we'll be able to pull it off, but 
um, until I have ticket in hand, we're not going to, um, you know, we won't make any promises about being able to shoot content or anything like that uh, at the opening on April 7th. But uh, for those of you that don't know, th uh, that's where Cybertruck is being built in the United States. Um, Josh, who's one of our, who's our executive assistant, he's on the, uh, he's on the wait list for his Cybertruck. They keep pushing it back. He keeps getting frustrated. So um, some quick channel updates and then we'll get into the Q&A. Um, 17, we broke 17,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you very much. That's, um, you know, we're very proud of that accomplishment considering that the total audience available audience in the whole world for us is a, only about a million people. When you consider the total number of people in our industry, it's only about a million people in the globe. Um, so we're very excited that we broke 17,000. That's a huge um, huge member of the audience, uh, or huge piece of the audience. And then, uh, discord server, we broke 3,600 members, active members actually. So, all right. And with that, let's get to, into the, uh, Q and a 17,000, right? Uh, any questions that anybody has be, that they want me to answer before I get started? We're actually going to start with a thought experiment. Yeah. <clears throat> so Zach, what do you think? I, I think it's pretty sick that we doubled in a year. I mean, last year, right around this time, we hit 8,000. And I remember we sent out an email saying, oh, we hit 8,000. Well, now it's a little, you know, we hit 16,000 uh, about a month ago. So, yeah, more than doubled in a year. Wow. It's amazing. And if you think in the last year, the number of the members of the community who have Someone asked me the other day <clears throat> in one of these consulting calls I was doing, you know, how long does it take to onboard someone for Industry 4.0? Like, if, let's say I'm going to take, you guys should have all seen the, there's a slide that I, I've, I've shown many times. That's the difference between the technical skill set of an Industry 3.0 professional versus the technical skill set of an Industry 4.0 professional and sort of all the additional skills you need to learn. Um, and someone had asked me, Hey, how long does it take to onboard a industry for professional? And I said, you know, in general, someone who's highly motivated, they're going to be able to support, uh, industry for projects probably within three months, you know, from start to finish, once they start training, you know, going through the skill set, you know, Python, you know, learning platforms, working with, uh, SQL, um, you know, building a unified namespace, even understanding ISA 95 part two or ISA uh, 101. Um, and so they can help in about three months, but it takes you about a year before you're standalone. You know what I mean? That is you could, you're, you could have transformed your aptitude into, um, you know, somewhere between a junior and senior level, um, support engineer in industry 4.0. And we have a ton of people who have made that who have made that leap from being, being a, a like-minded thinker who has high level aptitude to being someone who's actually boots on the ground, leading other developers. We have a, a ton of people in the community who have made that leap in the, just the last 12 months. And if you look at our, the greatest accomplishment, the one I'm most proud of, it's that it's the members of the community. If you look at the members of our community advisory board, the study groups on Saturday, uh, the, you know, all the weekly members here on the live Q and a, all the people in mentorship <coughs> and mastermind, how that community has grown, all the interaction we see on discord, you know, a year ago on discord, I was still having to write prompting questions in each channel in the morning, you know, one channel in the morning. I, I don't have to do anything. The community is, has, 
has taken over, you know, and that's what I'm most proud of is actually that, that development. So, um, all right, there was a question, uh, how would I migrate an OPC UA factory floor to UNS? What would be the first logical step? First logical step would be exactly what, uh, Zach dropped in there. You're going to want to OPC UA to MQTT gateway. Um, a couple of different ways to do it. You can start with, you can use Kepware to do the conversion through the IOT gateway, but that's going to be a single JSON that you'll have to parse on the broker side. Um, the best way to do it is to use Hybyte. So put Hybyte, have Hybyte um, Intelligence Hub connect to your OPC server. And then you just basically model clean. You just do a, a you transpose, transpose the OPC UA namespace to an MQTT topic namespace using Hybyte. Um, a more advanced way to do it, other than using Hybyte, a more advanced way would be to go ahead and connect an IoT platform, something like Ignition or Factory Studio. Um, even Canary Labs actually will do this. Canary Labs Historian will do this in its asset modeling um, tool. You connect that to your OPC server, and then you do your modeling in the IoT platform. But right now, the best way I would recommend to do it would be uh, um, using Hybyte's Intelligence Hub to do it. Go ahead, Zach. I actually had this uh, conversation with one of our enterprise clients this morning, and they were talking about that same exact thing. They have an Alan Bradley. How can they get that into namespace or how would you recommend data collection if you don't want to use a gateway? And I guess apparently there's like some sort of publisher module that Alan Bradley has, but it uses a lot of memory. So I'm like, dude, honestly, if you're plant level, just use a uh, OPC UA, get the data into a plant level namespace and then transmit that over mqtt to your enterprise namespace yeah we use we one of, i think one of the big misconceptions here is that we are anti-opc ua uh -huh. and that's a good point zach we are not anti-opc ua what we're saying is is that opc ua should only be used for process control layer data acquisition and transmission so generally if you're inside the plant or not necessarily inside the plant if you're on the on the operational network in the plant, OPC UA is totally appropriate. But once you're making that conversion from the operational network onto the business network, and definitely as soon as you're getting outside of the plant, you're moving, you have to um, convert that to an IoT pro protocol. Right. Um, the best way that, in my opinion, to do the Rockwell conversion, the way I generally do it, um, is we're going to go... Rockwell into an OPC server that could either be Ignition or it could be uh, um, Kep server. And then you you convert within the IoT platform. Go ahead, Zach. Sorry. Yeah. So someone else came up. Uh, this question came up after that, talking about tag space naming requirements. And I'm like, really, in my mind, there's two schools of thoughts. Do Like one, well, let's say you're at a plant and let's say this for easy numbers, this, this facility, this enterprise has 50 plants, right? The enterprise plant, you know, enterprise site, plant and site are sort of interchangeable area line cell, right? Um, let's say you're building an application for the plant level infrastructure. Do you a code everything from area down? So your namespace at the plant looks like area, 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 you know, line, 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 cell, cell, cell. Yep. So the namespace itself assumes that you know what site you're at mm -hmm. or so, you know, and then when you transmit it to enterprise, you add in, you know, the group ID and the edge node ID. So then it adds that context of which enterprise and which site am I? Um, or do you do the other route where it's fully qualified 
every facility, every site has the fully qualified UNS naming mechanism, right? Enterprise, right. It's what site it is, it area line cell, et cetera. The, the answer is that's a good question. And the answer is, is it really depends on your data flow. So it, dep it does depend on the architecture. Okay. Um, but what it boils down to, there have been implementations where we do both, but what I want to do is let me go, let me get it. Let me get, yeah, let me get into the Q&A piece. Well, actually, yeah. let me answer Shanjiv's follow-up, and then we'll get into the Q&A because I, th I, can, I can answer that architectural discussion. Um, so Sanjiv said, or to start with, could we just query the historian on the shop floor and transmit relevant data via MQTT to the unified, unified namespace? Yes, you're going to do that no matter what, assuming that your historian you know, supports the MQTT protocol. Ideally, you're using or you're putting a gateway in the middle. You, um, a really common way for us to pull out non-MQTT compliant historical data is to use OPC HDA. So that's the historical data acquisition from a from a historian. Most historians support OPC HDA. It's just like retrieving OPC UA, and then you're transpose, and transposing it into an MQTT topic namespace. Um, I want to answer... Um, also, Wodian's question here: What are the pros and cons of using Sparkplug instead of Vanilla MQTT? First off, it, um, let me qualify by saying we have Vanilla MQTT topics, topic namespaces living right side of right next to Sparkplug namespaces all the time in the brokers. There are you're, you're rarely are you going to have um, rarely are you going to have are you going to pick just one or the other. Um, uh, Narav brings up a good point that it's it's um, vanilla has no governance over the topic namespace. When let's talk vanilla MQTT, it basically means that there's no definition for how you construct the payload in an MQTT message. You can put anything in there, okay? And what a lot of people do is they the advantage of using vanilla MQTT, and Narav's making a good point here as well. The advantage of using vanilla MQTT is you can have many nodes writing into the same topic namespace at the same time. That's in when, whenever we have an application where we're doing that, where in a specific part of a topic namespace, we want multiple nodes to write into that, then we're using vanilla. Okay. And you may want that. And a lot of it would be think of if I'm using three different software capabilities to consume data and create information, you would need all three of those software capabilities to be able to consume, subscribe to data and publish into a namespace uh, without being limited. Sparkplug B gives you, it basically turns that topic namespace into a node namespace. It's node driven. So only one node is writing, any many nodes can consume, but only one is writing into the namespace. That's what Sparkplug B gives you. Sparkplug B gives you the semantical hierarchy with uh, group and group node and device IDs. Sparkplug B gives you native compression, gives you native encryption in addition to the encryption on the MQTT connection. So Sparkplug was really written for industrial. It's a standard for industrial data. And, and we, there are many videos where we talked about this before. It was written when MQTT3 was the standard, but MQTT5 has since come out. And many of the features of MQTT5 are taken from the Sparkplug B standard. So there, there is a, a, a question as to whether, uh, you know, 
how many of the features that are in spark plug B are going to be in spark plug C because many of them are going to be native to Mark, uh, MQTT five. Um, John Maldonado, do you separate vanilla MQTT namespace from spark plug B? If so, how? Yeah. Uh, so the spark plug B namespace is going to be, is going to originate in a namespace called spark plug B V 1.0 or whatever version. And then all of the edge nodes will be inside that spark plug B namespace. So if I've got say a hundred nodes publishing into the spark plug B namespace, it'll be SPB V 1.0 and then all your nodes. You use the group um, node and device IDs to organize that data semantically. And so then what you end up doing in the vanilla namespace is copying that. So say I want to merge data from the vanilla MQTT topic namespace with data that's in the Sparkplug B namespace. What I really do is I use the same group node and device ID hierarchy. So enterprise site, area line cell, that kind of thing. You And you basically are able to it, um, reference the data into Sparkplug B namespace just by dropping SPB V1.0 from your string. Okay. It, you basically use string manipulation to do it. Um, all right. Great. Um, all, all very good questions. Let me um, go to uh, my notebook here and let's talk about, I want to start with a thought experiment. Um, <clears throat> this actually, Cheryl and I were talking about this yesterday. And she had asked me a question. I think she was trying to extract this out of me. But one of the things she said was, you know, what would you tell legacy manufacturers that they've been doing wrong? Like, why is it they're behind the eight ball? She was basically asking me that type of question. And I said, well, the truth is, is that they should have been collecting data for later use since 2000. Like if I was a legacy manufacturer in in the 1990s and TCP IP won the protocol wars in 99 or 2000 and made it possible for me to go ahead and connect everything together, what I should have started to do was start collecting all of my data across my plant floor starting in 2000, every bit of it. Even if I didn't have a use case for that data, this is the mistake they made. They didn't have the vision to see the value of that data two decades from now. And I use this use case. There's, um, for those of you who work in oil and gas, you may have heard of these two companies. There was a company called Lufkin Sam that made a pump off controller. Think of it as a PLC for an oil well, okay? And it, um, um, or a, an RTU for an oil well, a smart device. Lufkin Sam made a pump off controller for an oil well. And they had a partnership with a company called Xpoc, XPOC, based in, I think they were in Southern California somewhere. What Lufkin Sam's brilliance is, is that for something like 30 years, Lufkin Sam collected all the data they for their own use. They collected all of the tubing and casing pressure data for all of the wells using their pump-off controllers for like 30 years, 25 years or something. And it basically showed a pump curve, um, but it was a well curve. And it showed the tubing and casing pressure of all these wells over time, every time the well cycled, okay? And then what they did was they merged, they put a little application in their pump-off controller, I think it was, where the lease operator could tell, could basically select from a list of failures when the well failed. Because if the well fails, it shuts in, and then they would, he would have to select from a list of failures. 
for like 25 years, they collected that data and didn't do anything with it. Like they just collected it. They knew it was going to be important. They just didn't know how it was going to be important. And then what they did was they sold it. I think they sold it to Xbox. And Xbox was basically uh, like a sequel-driven um, um, SCADA and analytics tool for oil and gas specifically. And what they did was they sold all that data. And what Xbox, Xbox was able to do was able to com compare your pump curve, your well curve. Uh, I can't remember what they call it in oil and gas. There's a specific name for it. Forgive me. I didn't refresh before this. They're able to compare your tubing and casing pressure, that curve, against all the historical curves and the reasons a well failed. And they were able to tell you what your likely failure was without the operator having to inspect the well. Now, the collection of that data took decades. I mean, they needed millions and millions of cycles to be able to compare resolution of that 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 higher resolution data against these results. Manufacturers needed to be doing the exact same thing. Uh, machine builders, in, is, as soon as they had the ability to start collecting and storing the data, since 2000, they should have been. And the vast majority of manufacturers are just now realizing they have to become data companies. And they wasted 22 years of opportunity, right? Um, so the thought experiment is, how many manufacturers do you know of have been collecting data for later use since they could have started collecting data in 2000? And I'll suspect that the answer from most of you is none. Okay. Go ahead, Zach. Well, I mean, it's, it's not really surprising because, I mean, even to this day, manufacturers still aren't getting it, right? Other auto manufacturers would think it's crazy to put in three, $4,000 worth of sensors for full self-driving hardware and give that to a customer who didn't pay for full self-driving. Like they just don't get it. You know, like Tesla had the vision to do that. And that was only like five years ago. Right. Agreed. Yeah. They're like, it, Why it, am I going to put this on? Cause the data is more valuable. When I was at that call this morning, I had with that, you know, so the, the, that one hour presentation I did this morning, uh, one of the one of the end users asked me the question, um, you know, why why has adoption been so sp adoption in industry 4.0 been so spotty and why have we and the results been so mixed? And I and my answer was, well, because the people running these companies don't understand the value of the data and they don't understand the technology. Who are they? They're MBAs, they're finance guys, they're accountants. You know, who who runs who runs the most technologically advanced companies in the world engineers software developers people who people who understand not just the value of data but how how what the challenges are in acquiring data and turning that data into something meaningful meaningful information uh, i want to answer um sullivan's um hey john sullivan good to see you dude um can MQTT handle millisecond response mod bus type data? The answer is yes. And there's a couple of different ways to do it. Um, the best way to do that, in my opinion, is going to be to use a Spark Plug B MQTT client that is stacked on top of your Modbus um, scanner. And what you're going to do is package, let's say, millisecond style. So you're going to package a thousand results into one payload, one Spark Plug B payload, and send it every second. 
So every second, you're going to send the results of every 1,000 transitions. That's probably the best way to do it. It's the way we've done it in the past. We've never gone down to one millisecond. We've gone down to five. So um, data that has five millisecond resolution, we've, we package it. Um, we put 200 um, readings in a one-second payload. And what's the lowest you'll go without com without compression? Quarter of a mil quarter of a second? Fifty. So you'll send every fifty seconds. You'll send a new trans. I'll okay. send. I'll send. That's pretty, I'll, that's pretty fast. I'll send. I'll send a fifty millisecond. Now again, you you have to you have to configure M your MQTT client to transmit at that rate though, because by default an MQTT client does not transmit faster than every one second. So. It, mm -hmm. it'll and it takes the last value so the by default if, if, if you look at the way mq the, the way the, the clients are designed in general it's we don't send a an update more than every one second and we only send the last one so say it changed three times in the last second we're going to send just the last one got it you have to configure that connection to send faster and you have to build the payload to send all of them uh, is it necessary to include an IOT sensor or may a smart IO link suffice? A smart IO link will suffice. Uh, yes. John Sullivan, ignition edge, CMT GX series from Maple systems. That'd work great. Uh, the CMT SVR would lurk, would work just as well as also there are a few others, but this too stands out most from my experience. Yes. Maple systems has done a lot of really cool stuff with, um, with spark plug B. And by the way, they were one of the very first adopters. Um, if you looked at the CMT SVR, actually I have it on my board back there. Um, I'm a huge fan of the CMT SVR in terms of like an edge appliance. It, even to this day, it's been like at the top of my list for like four years now, even to this day, it's still the biggest bang for your buck. I think you pay, don't quote me cause I haven't had it priced in a while, but the CMT SVR, you pay like 300 bucks or maybe 250 and you get something like 250 um, industrial drivers on it. And then it has spark plug B and vanilla support. So you can, the only issue is you can only have based on the last firmware I looked at, it either has to be configured as a spark plug B node or as vanilla, you can't set up two clients. I don't, and I think that had to do with saving resources on the device. Uh, Hey guys, have you worked implemented industry 4.0 solutions within a high value, low volume, um, high value, low volume manufacturing industry such as aerospace? The answer is yes, Mark. Um, many times, um, there are lots of implementations. I, I have some stories of, of like, uh, you know, supporting a aerospace supplier, like calculating OEE for castings that went into jet engines that where they their cycle times were like uh two weeks <laughs> you know, like so like two week long cycle times in in, in multiple processes and was taken you know like a 45 day from st from the start of the process to finish good was like 45 days yeah so um okay let's go into steps to digital transformation you guys keep answering your question asking questions and i'll answer them as they as they pop up but um Another thing that came up in the conversation this morning and is uh, I was talking to this was a company I was talking to in Europe and and we talked about this whole thing with the EU and how the EU defines it, you know, has a standard for Industry 4.0. You guys may have heard of this standard, you know, and 
when we did the Alistair Gilchrist interview, one of the things that Alistair was upset with me about, I wouldn't say upset, but he disagreed with me on, was our use of the term Industry 4.0. Because Alistair, living in the European Union, well, actually lives in Thailand, but does a lot of work in the European Union, but he's from Australia, I think, or maybe Ireland, actually, Scotland. Um, he said, you know, Industry 4.0 is an EU standard. Well, that's true. But that's not the definition of Industry 4.0. The definition of Industry 4.0 is it's the fourth industrial revolution. That's, I mean, that is what it is. You may have called it, the EU may have created a standard called Industry 4.0, but Industry 4.0 is the fourth industrial revolution, right? It's, it's the automation of business processes. But if you look at the EU standard, when somebody says, what is the digital transformation journey for an organization look like to go from Industry 3.0 to Industry 4.0, third industrial revolution, the automation of industrial processes, fourth industrial revolution, the automation of business processes, right? Through the collection, acquisition, and transformation of data into information, right? They created this maturity model, okay? The EU did. And, and, the, and these are the steps in the maturity model. Computerization, connectivity, visibility, transparency, predictive capacity, adaptability. Um, nobody fucking knows what that means, Okay. I, okay, I, I have, uh, you know, I'm a smart guy, many degrees, very accomplished engineer. I look at that and I can, I can infer what they mean on some of these steps, but that doesn't mean anything to anyone. Okay, it doesn't mean anything to anyone. Here's how I describe the digital transformation journey, and I think you guys should too. Okay, digital transformation happens in two steps. There are two big giant steps organizations take. Okay. Step one is becoming a smarter business. Okay. By taking data, turning it to information and making better decisions. That's step one. The, the second step is plugging my smart business into a digital supply chain. So I'm connected to other smart businesses. That's step two. That's the integration into the digital supply chain. 99 and five, nine percent of the people who are in their journey are all in the first step. And many of them fail in the first step. So what what are the what are the phases of the first step? There's only three of them. Okay. You have a phase one, a phase two, and a phase three. In phase one, you connect to data, you collect data, and you store data. Okay. In phase two, you analyze that data and you visualize that data. Oftentimes, step uh, phase one and two happen together. Like when you do your proof of concept, so I'm gonna I'm gonna turn data into information and make our business more efficient. I'm gonna connect, collect, store, analyze, and visualize. Okay, OEE calculation falls under the analysis. Okay, phase three is finding patterns, predicting, reporting, and solving problems. So you find patterns in the data, you predict future outcomes. You report those out, those likely outcomes, and you solve or mitigate. That's machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's really that simple, right? The steps to digital transformation, the truth is that it really happens in two steps. You become a smart business, and in, in order to become a smart business, you connect, collect, store, you analyze and visualize, you find patterns, you predict, you report, and you solve. And then once you're all done doing that, you plug, you connect your smart business into a digital supply chain. 
so that now you're not just talking to the links, the upstream links, the people who sell you stuff and the downstream links, the people you sell stuff to, but you're connected to all the links in the supply chain. Okay. That is the, those are the steps of digital transformation, right? It's, it's that simple. And when you go and this part of the thing, it frustrates me. I look at, you know, these specifications and all this stuff that organizations talk about all the time, you know, the, the you know, the EU talks about and the OPC foundation, you know, I, I, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the ISA, right? I'm a huge fan of the ISA. Okay. But I'm not really a fan of most other standards bodies. I'm a big fan of Eclipse. I really am. Um, but I'm really not a fan of other standards bodies. You want to know why? Because at the ISA, the standards are written by the people who do the work. <laughs> they're, they're written by the actual engineers. The, the, people who, the people who run the local chapters of ISA, they're engineers who do actual work. They're not business people. They're not, they're not MBAs who are trying to leverage the standard to steer consumers towards their product, which is what happens all the time. You know, the OPC Foundation is riddled with this problem, right? And, and this is why you can't listen to anything the OPC Foundation says. I doesn't mean that I don't respect the people at the OPC Foundation and all that stuff. And lot, not, there isn't a lot of smart people there. They, they lost their way. The OPC Foundation lost their way because the members in the OPC Foundation steer, try to steer you towards their products. And they, they don't write optimal specs because they're business people. At the ISA, they write optimal specs. I'm going to do the, the re, three steps again. So in the, there are two steps. There are two steps to digital transformation, two big giant steps. Step one takes most organizations five years, by the way. Okay, so... Step one is becoming a smart company, okay? What is a smart company? I'm digital and data is my primary commodity, okay? That's a smart company, okay? The three, the three phases within that first step are connect, collect, and store. That's phase one. We analyze and visualize in phase two, and we find patterns, predict, report, and solve in phase three. Now, Many times in, you know, in, depending upon which, which use case you're working on at any given time, you might be doing phase one and two at the same time. You might be connect, collect, store, analyze, and visualize. But, you, but what's really important to understand is that organizations in 2000 should have connected, collected, and stored. Starting in 2000, manufacturers should have connected, collected, and stored. And 20 years later, they may have decided how they were going to analyze and visualize it. Most manu legacy manufacturers are behind the eight ball because they didn't do those first three steps. Now, some had foresight. Lufkin Sam had foresight. Okay. And, you know, that's part of the reason Weatherford wanted their technology. And I think Emerson actually, ultimately Emerson, I think, is the one who acquired. Don't quote me there, but I I'm fairly certain I think that's what it was. But all right. Go ahead, Zach. Please don't don't look, don't look. But we do have eighty four people in the live chat, which is which is pretty high for a weekly live Q and A. So awesome. <clears throat> uh, probably so a bunch of people were messaging. So, <laughs> so that this this should make you happy then, because I'm gonna actually get into a. Um, 
Oh, this is a great question. Before I move into the last piece, I'm going to go over the actual unified namespace use case. Okay. Now, obviously, I'm doing this via via audio. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a case study, an actual client, what their journey looked like. I'm going to I'm going to literally bulleted. I'm going to go right through it. The first two things I covered lead us up to this case study. Okay. Um, so I'm going to review what we've covered up to this point, and then we'll go through the case study. But I want to answer Annabelle's question. Annabelle Velarde said, how much time in weeks and months would be a reasonable amount of time for an engineer to try to show a current employer the value of Industry 4.0 digital <laughs> transformation before giving up and leaving? Okay, great question. I love that last part. All right, so um, Annabelle, I'm, a, I'm assuming you, you're talking about yourself. Right? <laughs> so here, um, here's what it should look like. Um, every digital transformation journey starts in the same place, and that is admitting you have a problem. Okay. And, and, and if you're in mentorship and mastermind, I talk about this all the time. There's a common presentation I go through at the beginning of every session. Okay. Um, the organization has to admit there's a problem. So if the organization doesn't think there's a problem and you show them there's a problem and they still don't listen, get the fuck out of there. Okay. I'm not going to sugarcoat. Okay. Just get out of there. <laughs> all right. There. And here's why you should do that. Annabelle, you should do this. When you start interviewing for other organizations, start applying for other jobs. Here's here's some advice to you guys. Students at, at Penn Tech College, if you guys are still watching, I don't know if you're still in class, but you start applying for jobs. Here are some questions you should ask your future employer. What's your digital strategy? Question number one. Question number two. What are you doing to become a digital company where data is your primary commodity? That's question number two. Question number three, who do you believe are the smartest people in your organization? And the answer should be, the answer should be the people who do the actual work on the plant floor. A, a, a little known fact is that digital transformation, when you're in that first step of digital transformation, becoming a smart company, what you're doing is unlocking potential on the plant floor. You are enabling the people who know what all your problems are to solve your problems. You're using technology to do it. Okay. Uh, Annabelle, for you, same thing. You go to your employer, you say, what's our digital strategy? What are we doing to become a digital company? Okay. What are we doing to make data our primary commodity? And if they say nothing, Start applying for jobs. And let me tell you this, guys. Okay? Let me tell you this. You ask those three questions to a transformative organization, and they're not going to be able to get the offer across the table to you fast enough. They're going to hire you. They yeah. are going to hire you in a heartbeat. You ask those three questions. If somebody comes to my company and asks those three questions, I'm literally going to get up. I'm going to walk out of the room. And I'm going to say, I don't care what it takes. Get them. That's what I'm going to say, okay? Because right now, you may or may not know this, but organizations are starved for forward-thinking, transformative employees. The employee of the future is a technologist who solves their own problems using technology. And everyone is trying to find these people. So you ask those three questions, I promise you, 
You ask those three questions, and they won't be able to get the offer letter across the table to you fast enough. All right, let's review real quickly what we've talk, talked about. Uh, oh, wait, yeah, Sanjiv, good question. I wanted, I was going to answer this. Typically, how long does it take to capture factory floor data, push it to the UNS, and provide some simple visualizations? How do we size and commercially package this work? I, I can't answer the size and commercially packaging because that's going to be, that's a function of what, of capabilities, but I can answer the first part. Okay. How do I put that in a resume? John Maldonado. Um, that is a great question. And Cheryl, Cheryl, please put that on our list. Please put that on our list of ant questions we need to answer commonly. What should you, how to, how to communicate in your resume. Okay. Um, Sanjiv, I'm going to answer your question here again. So typically, how long does it take to capture flacture, capture factory floor data, push it to the unified namespace, and provide some simple visualization? Here is our standard. So you're talking proof of concept here. Okay. Our standard is from breaking ground to delivering the first iteration of actual value. That's That means I'm going to have a team. I'm going to have architecture. I'm going to have infrastructure. We will have connected, collected, stored, analyzed, and visualized in a proof of concept with real production data is 12 weeks or less, $50,000 or less. That's our standard. So when I'm talking to my team, I say, we're going to provide that value in 12 weeks or less for $50,000 or less. Now understand that $50,000 USD includes fixed costs, right? So Servers you only pay for one time, the license you only pay for one time, that kind of stuff, right? We generally try to do our POCs without buying any licenses. So you should be able to go through, connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize in a POC in 12 weeks or less, real value with infrastructure and a team for $50,000 or less. Okay. How, do you, how long do you work on your POC prior to making it functional? 12 weeks. Our standard, what we say 12 to 16 weeks. There are some proof of concepts where, you know, we try to keep it to five or six capabilities, but there are some proof of concepts where the client may say that we have to have all 15 of these things, and that's going to extend how long it, it would take to build. Um, don't ask how much, don't ask how much did it cost? Uh, don't ask. Um, if you clarify, I'll answer that. And let, let's do, so let's go through again. We started out, I wanted a thought experiment. That thought experiment was, think about how many people you know, whether you work there or whether you have clients, how many companies you know of that should have been collecting data, started collecting their data for later use starting in 2000 and how many actually have? And the answer is very few, which is why everybody's freaking out now and is trying to digitally transform yesterday, okay? The real steps to digital transformation is really two big steps. Become a smart company first, plug into a digital supply chain check second, so you're connected to all the other smart companies, okay? Step one is where everybody is, <laughs> trying to become a smart company. And you do it in three phases. You connect, collect, store, you analyze, you visualize, you find patterns, predict, report, and solve. And then you iterate, you scale out. So I'm gonna go ahead and give you guys a use case example. All right, this is an actual case study. One of our case studies started in 2017 and they are in their global machine learning deployment right now. Okay, so they are, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk right through this, okay? 
So this client um, is a tier one automotive supplier. The proof of concept started in North America in one facility, um, actually in one plant on a campus that had three plants. Okay. The proof of concept started out with crafting a three sentence digital strategy in, um, in this facility. Okay. And we had the director approve it. Um, we designed our architecture, which is if you're in mentorship and master mind, you've seen this architecture a gazillion times. Um, we did three areas, 22 assets, 30 PLCs. So three production areas, 22 total assets, 30 PLCs. We went through the process of connecting everything, collecting every single data point, storing every single data point in a historian through a unified namespace. And then we built in our MES capabilities. We analyzed that data, post-process, create OEE. We combined that with real-time data into a very common user interface that you guys have seen where I talk about homogeneous and heterogeneous, the four quadrant uh, work order information upper left, OEE calculations upper right, um, downtime tracking lower left, and then a bunch, bunch of analytics stuff. And then we visualize that. So the, the primary capabilities that we built for them were work order management, scheduling, OEE, downtime tracking, and track and trace, genealogy. Um, they're a highly serialized organization. So you had to be able to put in any serial number. So a serial number of a subcomponent or a serial number of a finished good. And you had to be, and it, we had to be able to extract the genealogy of that product. So all the subcomponents that went into the finished good, but not only that, the operators, the machines it was run on, what the OEE calculations were when it was running through, what were the top five downtime reasons. There was a complete genealogy we built in there. Okay. That proof of concept took us, should have taken six months, but it took us almost a year because they're a huge organization and there were it was littered with IT delays. And in fact, we had to get one of their IT members fired who was actually literally um, sabotaging the, the project. It was this girl. Um, who we ended up having to get fired, okay? Once we were done with the proof of concept, we did our presentation, we started collecting our ROI data. Any of you guys who have seen our ROI case study, the $250,000 investment that yielded $25 million return in 18 months, that's this project, okay? But I've never talked about what happened after that, okay? So what we did was immediately following, when we, when we launched in January 2018, which is when we actually launched, um, and we started collecting data from January of 2018 to September of 2019. That was our ROI data. Um, we were iterating with new capabilities. We added a bunch of new capabilities to that core infrastructure. So we kept expanding the unified namespace with functional namespaces. And then we analyzed and visualized data from that. We started iterating with new capabilities. And at the same time, we started training all users at site number one. Okay. We, then we iterated at site number one by adding two new areas, two new production areas, where we connected, collected, stored, analyzed, and we visualized with the existing capabilities. So at this point, we've got five areas on this one campus, and I think something like 100 assets total. That is uh, at the 18-month mark. Then we deployed to sites two and three um, in different states. Okay, So we went to different states. 
and we deployed to two new sites. This is our team still doing it in six new production areas with more than a hundred assets, connecting, collecting, store, analyzing, and then visualizing with the existing capabilities. We did not iterate with any new capabilities. And then we, we took the namespaces, the unified namespaces of those three sites, the sites one, two, and three, and we transmitted them to a business unit broker at a, for all of North America. Okay, so all three of those sites, all the areas, all the assets transmitted to a higher level broker namespace for the business unit. At the same time, we completed the training for um, sites two and three users, and we handed over iterations to their internal team. So they created a North American team that was tasked with deploying this infrastructure to the rest of their organization. Okay. We, we as a team stayed on as the architects to help them turn all this data they were collecting into, to, to start with machine learning and pattern matching. Okay. So we helped them build out their data lake. And then we worked with their data scientists so that they could understand how the namespace was constructed. And then they started doing all their ML use cases. So they started finding patterns in all the business unit data, not just individual sites, but all three sites combined together. They started predicting outcomes. And we started by reporting the outcomes via Power BI and Power Apps in Azure, in, in, um, Azure Cloud. And that's where we are today. Right now, they are iterating. They have since deployed to almost 50 sites across five business units. Okay. And the, the, and, and the, the data science team is doing all the pattern matching right now. Total spend, I don't know what their total spend is, but I can tell you what their total spend with us was just over $1 million. So if you look at everything they did, all those facilities, all the value, and, and, and their, their ROI is in the hundreds of millions of dollars now. And their total spend with us was about a million. All right. Any questions about that use case? I want to uh, ask. Yeah, yeah, Mark Jackson. Do you utilize business intelligence software like Power BI to create dashboards to explore data from the unified namespace? Yes, we do. Uh, another great tool that I really, really like that I've been using more and more lately is the Cogent Data Hub. <laughs> Bless me, sorry. By Skynet. Um, it's just really good for navigating the unif the UNS. Um, but there's a ton ton of connectors and stuff in the data hub. I, I really like the Cogent Data Hub a lot. Um, what was the storage platform this POC? Was it time series or relational? It was a combination. There were three storage platforms. So we were using time series at the plant level, Narav, for historical data. And that was NoSQL time series using Canary Labs Historian. We use a relational database for all genealogy tracking. So all the track and trace stuff. Um, and then we used a, uh, no data lake, um, where we use Kafka to optimize the time series data that we're streaming, that we were streaming into the data lake all from the UNS. Um, is node red used in real industrial applications or more for academic projects? Great. This question comes up a lot, Eduardo. Um, the answer is it really should be used more for like wireframing and proof of concept, but 
Yeah, that really that really changed when Opto Twenty Two put Node Red on board on the Groove Epics. Mm. So their PLCs have Node Red on board, and Node Red has become a lot more hardened. And there are a lot of really good nodes that are definitely production ready. And there are many examples of production Node Red flows out there in the world. So the answer to your question is it's transitioning from more of a proof of concept platform to something that's ready for the big time. And, same, and, and they're being used. Same thing with Arduino, like with their pro line of products, they're really marketing towards industry 4.0. They just came out with like, they had the Portenta H7 and then they had the, the Portenta machine control. They came out with like an H8 controller. Also they had like the, that little four, the, the NICU, the little uh, environmental sensor. They just came out with another one uh, for vision, like a little camera with vision and AI uh, for industry 4.0 applications. So let me, let me, I uh, want to go back to Wodian's comment. He said, many companies still aren't aware of how much data they can see or use for their business. That's right. Um, and the reason why is because they're not led by uh, tech visionaries. What, what part of what's going to change in industry is that you're going to see that the CEOs for these large manufacturers are going to become more and more, you're going to see engineers in those roles. Uh, at least for the next decade, um, two decades. That's a really good point, Wodian. And uh, there was one other thing I want to make sure I answered, uh, which is... How much of this work was repeatable? Yeah, how much of the work was repeatable? The answer is we use an 80-20 model. Um, so Sanjiv, uh, we do what's known as heterogeneous and homogeneous development. Homogeneous development are all the features, the visualizations, the analysis and features that are congruent across all processes. Okay. This is a, this is one of the reasons that like the solution centered approach, like the, the Rockwell automation connected enterprise, it doesn't work. The digital thread approach doesn't work. And it has to do one of, this is just one of the reasons it doesn't work is that it does, you can't build the solutions for operators on the plant floor solely from a data center coming from an enterprise data store. The only thing that you're streaming all the way up to the cloud to compare across your business are the congruent data points. So it's going to be things like apples to apples comparisons. We call that, those are the homogenous feature sets. So even when you look on a visualization, you have to have a mechanism to have data that is the same no matter which production line I look at, which facility I go to, which area I go to. But about 20% of that has to be the CICD stuff, the stuff that the plants do, the continuous integration, continuous development. So to answer your question, about 80% of what you do is totally repeatable. And when I mean repeatable, I mean, after you build a feature set, if it costs 100 units of effort to build a feature set using our architecture, it's going to cost 40, it's going to take 40%, 40 units of effort to deploy it to the next thing. And after that, it's going to take 20 and after that, it's going to take 10 units of effort. And I was just talking about this this morning, that if you don't, if you're not, if you're not reducing your implementation costs with each iteration, then your architecture is wrong. If it's, if, if it's, if it costs me N to do the feature set and it costs me N to deploy to the next place, I did something completely wrong. Okay. If it doesn't cost me 0.4 N at the second one, I did something wrong. If it doesn't cost me 0.2 N at the third one, I did something wrong. 
Good question. Um, and then I'll ask Annabelle, answer Annabelle's question. We'll call it a day. So Annabelle Velarde, do you see the MQTT and Kafka complement each other in the use cases you come across? Does it help or hinder the case for enterprise microservices to serve data and functions to other parts or yeah, of VEX to other parts of the enterprise? Yeah, they are definitely complements to one another for sure. Although you will definitely get the Kafka time series optimization versus MQTT discussion, holy wars within organizations all the time. And it's not hard to figure out who picks which side. You know, the the IT architect is the Kafka guy and the operations guy is the MQTT guy, right? So you, you, but you get those holy wars all the time, but they're definitely complement to one another. You need a strong architect who is a transformative and uh, disruptive leader to, to um, referee those discussions. Um, and then the last thing is, does it help or hinder the case for enterprise microservices to serve data uh, and f of x to other parts of the enterprise? It helps the case, not hinder. Um, all right. Uh, Cheryl McCrary, uh, Nirob's question is a great lead in to what do you ask your vendors about how to connect to their data? Nirav Patel, which MES out of the box will connect to UNS MQTT Spark could be? Yeah, there was a there was a, a question that some um, I think it was uh, um, Richard um, Shaw asked the question: What are the four questions you're supposed to ask vendors? Um, you know, to see if they meet your minimum technical requirements. And I'm going to share that information with Richard. But there are actual questions you should ask the vendors so that you can filter them out to make sure that they're going to meet your minimum technical requirements for this type of architecture. Yeah. All right. Um, no, I do remember we did, we did talk about that at one point, but I, I think that would be a good resource for um, people. To yeah. Uh, let me answer Narav's question here again. So he, he has one more question. Have you implemented any of these on Docker? So the answer is yes. Um, there's another use case. I'm going to go, there's a case study I'm going to do. I won't do it next. I think it's going to be the one I do two from now, but it's uh, basically, um, everything's deployed via Docker. Okay. So each of the node namespaces. So basically they have, uh, these rigs, which are well, water wastewater treatment facilities, basically. And each of those, they're basically a plant on wheels, a wastewater facility plant on wheels. Uh, we deploy to their edge PC there. It's all Siemens infrastructure. So WinCC and S7 1200s for all the process control. So there's two rigs and a couple. That is basically treated as a plant. We do all the deployment all the, uh, um, to the Advantech Unos, which are running on each of those devices. We do all that through Docker. Uh, an open pricing structure for a start. Yep, that's definitely one of the questions, Lee. Outside of the industrial operations area, do you see a benefit of then connecting a UNS to the sales marketing side, pulling in data from Salesforce to understand product sales demand? Yes, in fact... We are doing, um, one of our customers, one of our clients should actually be on here. Um, I don't know if he is, but uh, he's the he's the director of digital transformation for one of our clients in Illinois. They're, um, and, and we have the Salesforce integration. So Salesforce into JD Edwards, um, and then, uh, so JD Edwards, Salesforce um, connected to the UNS. Um, We're getting this question a lot, actually. Get, a, get the question a lot. And, and that, that's just one example, one example of it. Um, and then last one for Emerson, and we'll call it a day. Emerson Crispin, a question that a potential customer asked me last week. Okay, to use MQTT as a protocol to compose a UNS, 
is the best choice, but can I use another protocol besides MQTT? What do you recommend? So we really goes in this order. MQTT, AMQP, DNP3. Um, AMQP, part of the reason we don't end up using AMQP unless we're building out Azure infrastructure, like full Azure stack, is because AMQP, you know, it's not to be surprised, it, it, it's more verbose than MQTT is. So the headers of AMQP are much bigger than they are in MQTT. It meets all the requirements, report by exception and edge driven, but it's not as lightweight as MQTT. And there's a whole bunch of other features in AMQP that you use so rarely, it's pretty hard to justify going that route. But the answer is, the answer you need to give to your customer is um, any broker technology. Broker is pub sub, edge driven, report by exception, lightweight. All right, awesome. Hey, Nicolay, thank you very much, man, for the super chat, brother. Appreciate you. Looking forward to more and more webinars like this where you give us technical insights. Thank you. Um, uh, oh, Chris Demirs, I will answer this one more. This is a good question. I'll answer Chris's question and then we'll definitely call it. Um, the Advantech Unos are obviously a cost-effective gateway, but do they have the horsepower to run ML at the edge? The answer is they can run... Um, simple linear regression models on the edge. If you're going to get into any type of heavy compute, especially any, like if you're ever going to do like any type of vision stuff, obviously you're not going to use an Advantech Uno, right? If you're going to be trying to do OCR or anything like that, obviously the Uno is not there, but you can do some simple linear regression. You can run some pretty, pretty simple models on the edge with the Uno, but I wouldn't recommend it. You want to reserve that horsepower for the connect, collect and store. Um, and yes, Edward Brown, have you applied this on welding robotics in a body shop? You know, what's really funny. It wasn't in a body shop. It was in the use case I just told you. There were two welders. So there were two robotic welders. Um, the, the case study I went over, there are two robotic welders on each of the production lines for that tier one automotive supplier. All right. Awesome. Annabelle, thank you, everybody. hit the like button, folks, to help the YouTube algorithm. So thank yes. you. Please hit the like, uh, subscribe, comment, all those happy things, and give, a, will... give us a give us a review on iTunes. This this episode is published on the 4.0 Solutions podcast. You can listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. So make sure to uh, like and give us a five star review on the podcast platform, which we're pushing more. Uh, thanks for joining, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you. <laughs>